0: Next week, Michael will be beginning his series on the book of Philippians. So I encourage you to come next week. We'll also be um, celebrating the Lord's Supper next week. Um, so looking forward to both of those things. And this morning we are going to conclude our series on "We Believe." I pray that that this series has been a blessing to you. That that we're uh, that you and I will both be both hearers of the word and doers of the word. And as we come to the end of this series, we look at the last of these major doctrines or teachings, the end times, the, the, the end things. The title again is Then Comes the End, a look at last things. And if you remember last week, we looked broadly at the storyline of the Bible, and we saw that the Bible is moving on a path, or what we referred to as a trajectory, a direction. It's moving forward, all the way back, beginning at the book of Genesis. See, God has a plan, it's moving forward. And and here's here's the the neat part, that we are given the great privilege of being participants and stewards in that plan that's moving ahead. We are not just observers of that plan, but but we are participants in it. God has chosen to use us in his plans of bringing together all things, and we looked last week at five key movements in the trajectory of the storyline of the Bible. Five key movements, and we're not going to rehash all these, but I just want to have, them on, uh, to have you look at them. We saw that everything begins with Adam. God commissions Adam to be his representative, to, to rule his creation, to spread his glory to the ends of the earth. And we read about how that story continues with Noah as sin enters into the world, and the world waxes worse and worse, and God wipes everything clean, so to speak, with, through the flood. And there's a sort of a, a new beginning with Noah as he steps off the ark. God gives him the same command he gives Adam to be fruitful, to multiply, to spread his glory to, as uh, image bearers spread the earth but as god wipes the world clean of sin there's a problem the human heart has sin in it as well and we see that that adam is caught up or noah is caught up with sin similarly to adam through a fruit and his nakedness is exposed. And then we turn to Abraham, where God now now says in this plan that's moving forward, I am going to work through a people. And God promises Abraham both, not now, not to be fruitful, but he promises Abraham, I will make you fruitful. Because we cannot accomplish anything without God's working as sin has made evident. And not only will he produce a a, a fruitful people that will bless the nations, but there will be be a return to the land that was lost. And that that brings us to Israel. As God says, I will make you Israel a light to the nations, to the Gentiles. You will be a priestly nation for me to declare my glory that the nations would, would flock to you. And In between Israel and the church, we have the common denominator of Jesus that comes onto the scene. He accomplishes what Israel cannot accomplish. He is the light to the nations. He obeys the Father perfectly. He's the perfect son that Adam couldn't be, as the Bible refers to Adam, uh, with the implications that you are my son, the Bible calls Israel my son. Well, the perfect son comes Jesus. And through Jesus, we see now the church. And we are called sons and daughters of God. Amen? And we are given a command to be a light to the nations. Matthew 28, aren't we? You see, we, we go through all of this because as we said last week, End times, or that big word eschatology, which simply means the study of that which is yet to come, end times does not begin in Revelation. It begins all the way back in Genesis. That God has set out to accomplish His plans. And nothing can thwart that. Not sin, not humanity, no one or nothing. So again, as we now uh, look at this, theme as we conclude this series we are going to again set out to begin uh, what we started last week in continuing our trek to gain a proper perspective on the end of God's story we're going to seek to answer these questions again what is the purpose of of eschatology how does the Bible portray that which is yet to come What is the general framework of various views concerning end times? How are we to view these differences of opinion? All of that by 1115. (laughs) So let's say this together. Here's been our theme for the past however many months we've been been going through this series. Let's say it nice and strong and loud, okay? God's people are called to both know and live. Let's pray. Father, would You open our minds and our hearts to receive what You have for us? Father, apart from the leading of the Holy Spirit, we cannot understand the the Scriptures. Father, just as You revealed to us our need for salvation... Father, so we need for you to open our hearts to not only know facts, but, Lord, to make that become a part of our life to where it affects our living. Lord, would you just guide our look at the Word of God today? Would you give us graciousness? Would you give us humility? Would you give us insight? Lord, would you change our lives because of it? In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, again, we saw that the aim of the Bible is eschatology. The aim of the Bible is the fulfillment of all of God's plans and promises. Today, we're gonna look at a second aspect of then comes the end, our two-week look at eschatology. Number two, we have to realize that eschatology is for today. Eschatology is for today. You may say, well, Pastor Adam, what do you mean eschatology is for today? Is not eschatology the study of that which is yet to come? And I would say, yes, it is, but eschatology is for today, and we're going to look why that is the case as we look at the precedent of the Bible we're going to let the Bible speak for itself. You may, in in your life, maybe with your children, you you say, you know, you talk between your, yourself and your spouse if you're married, or maybe you're at work and you are in some of the upper the upper realms of management. And you talk about different things. And, and what's often the, the way we use precedent in the Bible? I mean, in, in our lives, in whatever circumstances you may find. If you're a parent, you may say, well, you know what? We better not do this because it'll start a precedent. And the kids are always going to expect this. Or maybe you're, in, you're at a workplace and you're like, well, you know, we could do this, but we better not because it may start a precedent we don't want to, to have happen. Or maybe you're in the classroom and, and, you're, and you think, man, if I do this, it's going to start a precedent that, that every student is going to want to do this. In fact, Rachel... Um, shared with me a story uh, in her class. Uh, she went to the academy at Pensacola, which is very, very regimented. And there was one guy that, that um, I, I don't know if, uh, didn't seem to c- quite fit the mold. And he told some of the guys that if you get tired or have trouble paying attention, it's okay to, to get up and go to the back of the room and just kind of wake yourself up and stretch your legs. Well, guess what happened halfway through that semester? You'd walk through the hallways and you'd see a a, a herd just walking around the classroom because a bad precedent was started. (laughs) Well, we have to look to the scriptures for our precedents because the precedents that the Bible states is what we have to follow. So let's look at the precedent of the Bible in seeing that eschatology is for today. And we're going to start by looking at the prophets. As many of you know, the Bible is divided up in, in, in literary works that you have the, the, you have the Torah or the law, that's the first five books of the Bible. You have books of history, and you have books called the prophets, where the prophets would, would proclaim the word of the Lord to Israel and to Judah. And we're going to look at the precedent that we see in the prophets regarding that which is to come. And how are we then supposed to view that which is to come? So turn in your Bibles, if you will. We're going to look at a few different places. If you're uncomfortable turning to different places in your Bible, I'd encourage you to use the Bible provided for you and the rack in front of you. Uh, I'll give you page numbers. But I want you to turn to a book, the book of Joel. That's not a book we turn to a lot, is it? doesn't mean it's not important. Uh, In fact, if you're using a pew Bible, we'll be on page 761. But as you're turning there, just listen, because um, I'm going to talk about something else first. I want to give you a few examples of the prophets and how we're to view eschatology. For instance, the book of Isaiah. The book of Isaiah is the longest book in the prophets. It's 66 chapters. And as you read through Isaiah, you are going to see many different elements to the message that Isaiah has, both for Israel and for the various nations surrounding Israel. For instance, the book of Isaiah, it, he, he deals with the current state of both Israel and the nations. With Israel, they have turned from God. They are offering sacrifices, but, but it's empty-hearted. Uh, they're just going through ritual, and God says, I abhor it. And he talks about the nations and how they're filled with pride and how God, will, God is using the, the nations to, to be an instrument of judgment against his people, but he is also going to judge his, uh, the nations as well. It's, it talks about the current state The sinful condition of Israel and the nations. But also it talks about the Lord's future work. In fact, many times it's almost like you're coming in and out of different themes in the book of Isaiah. And there will be a a theme of the people's rebellion. And then it will be a theme of hope that God will restore His people But guess what is all throughout all of those aspects to the book of Isaiah? It is a call for the people to repent. And it is also a call for the people to have hope. You see, the Israelites and the nations were not to simply view the message of Isaiah as interesting facts for that which is in the future. They were to view the words of Isaiah, both when he talked concerning that which is present and that which is to come, as a reality that they are to take for. The present moment and act upon it let's also look you're at the book of joel joel is a smaller book than isaiah much smaller it's only uh, what 12 chapters it's only no it's only three chapters but we see the same pattern in the book of joel now we're not going to dissect this passage, I just want to want to read some of it for you, and we're not going to expound on all the verses, but look at the pattern here. Notice verse 1 of chapter 2, talking about the day of the Lord. It says, "...blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain." Let the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. Doesn't that sound much like what we read with Paul's writings? The day of the Lord is at hand. In fact, um, it's very near. We're going to talk about that in a few moments. Verse 2, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, like blackness there is spread upon the mountains. A great and powerful people, their like has never been before, nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. It says, fire devours before them and behind them a flame burns The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness and nothing escapes them. By the way, remember what we talked about. The beginning of scriptures is the beginning of of God's aim. That's why he uses the Garden of Eden analogy here. We're not to forget that which is behind and just say eschatology is just confined to the future. Then in verse 4, Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses they run. As with rumbling of chariots, they leap on the tops of mountains like the crackling of a flame of fire, devouring the stubble, like a powerful army drawn up for battle. Before them peoples are in anguish, all faces grow pale, like warriors they charge, like soldiers they scale the wall, they march, each on his own way, they do not swerve from their paths." Uh, they do not jostle one another. Each marches in his path. They burst through the weapons and are not halted. They leap upon the city. They run upon the walls. They climb up into the houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. You may say, What in the world's going on here? Uh, there, there was a locust plague in the book of Joel sent by God as a judgment on the land. But there's a greater judgment that's, that's coming. The nation of Assyria is going to devour the land, just like those locusts did physically. And he's comparing these soldiers to locusts. In fact, John draws in the book of Revelation on this passage when he 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 uh, mentions this symbolism of locusts. Now let's continue in verse 10. The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? See, the theme of the day of the Lord was both a very scary theme, because the prophets would pronounce judgment on God um, for the disobedience of, of God's people and the nations, but it was also a day of hope. There were different aspects to this day of the Lord theme. There was a near fulfillment of the day of the Lord, like when this army invaded. And there's also a far fulfillment of the day of the Lord, when Jesus would return. And there would be an ultimate restoration. The prophets mixed the two. And we don't have time to unpack all this, but it's kind of like looking at a mountain range. When you look at a mountain range from far away, you see one large mountain range. But when you look up close, you see several mountains in that mountain range. That's like what the prophets did when they prophesied. That's why they could mix fulfillment that was coming very soon and fulfillment that was coming very far away. So we see this Uh, Joel saying, the day of the Lord is coming, but yet now look what he says in verse 12. Yet even now, not later, Now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and He relents over disaster. And we're not going to keep reading for sake of time, but you see again, the mix of the prophetic word, And here's how you are to live in light of it today. Eschatology is not just for the future. It is for today. Many times we get the idea that when we study things that are yet to come, or you do a study in Revelation, again, we're going to talk about this, that it piques people's curiosity because we all have an itching to know that which hasn't happened yet. But I wonder sometimes how our lives are being affected in the present. Or is it simply just this curiosity to know that which we do not know? That's not the precedent we see in the Bible. Another place, for instance, is the book of Jonah. You talk about a near prophecy. Remember, Jonah goes to the Ninevites and says in 40 days, God is going to send judgment. Now, they just supposed to, were they supposed to sit there and analyze the 40 days? No, what were they supposed to do? They were supposed to act today and repent because judgment was coming. On and on, we could go And see this precedent in the prophets. But what we have to note, because we can only look at a few of these for sake of time, is that the prophets are a constant interweaving of the prophetic word and the call to to action in the present. It would be uh, unthought of for the prophets to say something and expect people just to listen and not to change their way of life, not to act. Second example that we're going to look at in, in the Bible is you have the epistles, the letters that were written to the churches. If you uh, would turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15, again, if you are using a Bible that's provided for you, we're on page 961. The epistles deal with that which is yet to come. In 1 Corinthians 15, that's where we'll be. It's a, uh, you're probably familiar with this passage. Uh, if not very familiar, you're probably familiar with the theme of it, the resurrection of Christ, that there were those uh, in Corinth, and, and we'll be talking about this uh, as we study the book of Corinthians in the future, no pun intended, <laughs> did you get that, the future, okay, so act accordingly and start reading through Corinthians, after you read through Philippians, <laughs> There were people that were saying that that Christ wasn't raised from the dead. And they were troubling the church of Corinth. And, and, you know, the idea that maybe it was just a spiritual resurrection, it wasn't a real resurrection. And what does Paul do? He says that no, if Christ isn't raised from the dead, everything that we place our hope in is, is gone. We're to be pitied as fools. If Jesus was never really raised from the dead. It's, it is the center of our faith. And then he goes on and he says in verse 50, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the perishable, perishable imperishable. But I tell you a mystery, we shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. And he starts to give hope. He starts to talk about this aspect of Christ's coming that, that, listen, we are going to to be loosed of the, the physical infirmities of this body, and we are going to be raised with that which is imperishable, with a new body free from sin and the frailties of the flesh. And how does he conclude? Does he say, therefore, think about that day and just eagerly long for it? No, he goes much deeper than that. In verse 58, what does he say? Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, Always abounding in the work of the Lord. Why? Here's where the rubber meets the road. Because if Christ was raised and Christ is coming again and we are going to receive that which is imperishable, we then know that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. We see once again the precedent that that which is yet to come is supposed to impact my life today. We see the same thing in 1 Thessalonians 4. We're not going to turn there. Uh, Actually, go ahead and turn to 1 Thessalonians. Um, That is if you're using a, a, a pew Bible, page 987. You're all familiar with verses 13 to 18, where again, here's a different issue that the Thessalonian church was going through. What happens to our deceased loved ones? And he talks about the fact that, hey, the, the deceased loved ones are actually going to, their bodies will be raised even before ours, who are living, will be. So, what's the current impact upon that? Verse 18, therefore, encourage one another with these words. There is again hope that is to affect the present. And then the very next chapter, again, there was a question that, a concern that the false teachers were giving to this Thessalonian church, not just confusion regarding those who have already died, but the fact that Jesus had somehow already returned, and that maybe it was a spiritual return, and they're confused. And Paul says in chapter 5, concerning the times and the seasons, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. So these, these brothers and sisters in this Thessalonian church, remember we talked about the day of the Lord just in that Joel passage, and this is another element of the day of the Lord. He says, hey church, don't worry that the day of the Lord has, has somehow already come and is coming, or uh, has already come and and is in the process of coming, and he gives an explanation. While they're saying there's peace and security, sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains. This is exactly uh, what Jesus talks about in Matthew 24. Notice what he says in verses 4 through 6, however. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day, we are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. Do we get a picture yet of how that which is not yet here is to impact us? I don't mean to say anything controversial, but one of the worst things I think of the, the Left Behind series, I don't know how many of you were all into that. One of the worst impacts I think of that series is that it turns eschatology into a source of entertainment. That it becomes something that just simply piques our curiosity and gives us a good storyline. But that was never the purpose of eschatology. That is a commercializing of Eschatology. We see here that our concern is to bring us back to the present day and how we are to live in light of that which will come. Let's look at one other example of this. This is the book of Revelation. You may say, ah, finally we're here. (laughs) And we, of course, are not in Boy, time's running out. We're not in 10 minutes going to uh, unpack the 22 chapters of Revelation. I just want to give you some precedent and things to keep in mind if, as you read through Revelation and study that. Revelation gives us this same precedent. Scripture is consistent throughout the whole Bible. Here's what I want to point out to you of the 22 chapters. Please realize that before you ever get to chapter four, that you have to read chapters one to three. If you're ever going to get the rest of the book of Revelation, you've got to get through chapters one to three. What are chapters one to three? They're dealing, and specifically chapters two and three they are dealing with the seven churches that were in Asia Minor. Seven historical churches. So I just want to give you some principles. These won't be on the overhead. First of all, note that Revelation, which again, I just said, I just want to reword it this way. Revelation was written to these seven churches in light of present day circumstances, not future curiosity. Revelation was written to these seven churches in light of present-day circumstances, not future curiosity. You see, these churches were going through real difficult times. They were going through persecution. They were going through, as the first church in Ephesus, a danger of losing their first love and becoming an empty church just doing things because they knew they needed to do them. They were going through people that were trying to infiltrate the church and promote false uh, doctrine and teaching. And Jesus says uh, to John, I want you to record these books to these seven churches. Why? Because I know what they're doing and I know what they're going through and they need this for the present day in order to to persevere. God's people, as he says in, the first, uh, in chapters 2 and 3, will persevere. In fact, Jesus says, those who persevere will be the ones who eat from the tree of life in the new heaven, in the new earth. So realize that that revelation was written in light of present-day circumstances, not future curiosity. Number two, Note that each call, each church was given a call of action. Just like what we read in the other passages, each church was given a call of action. That call of action could be repentance, return to your first love. That call of action could simply be endurance. That They were to endure. That call of action could be to faithfulness, to not be afraid, to cast out that which is is infiltrating the church. Every church was given in light of what they heard, a call to action. Number three, we have to note the calling, the call at the end of the book in Revelation 22.20. Surely I am coming soon, it says in Revelation 22.20. See, that's the impetus. That, that is the reason that we live. That is the hope that we have. And then, number four, we must correctly understand Revelation 1:3. If you're there, we're on page 1028 towards the back of the Bible, it'd also be on the overhead. Notice the Bible says, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Now, I don't know about you, but I've heard in the past individuals say, um, uh, whether, whether it was growing up or whenever i don't remember i just remember hearing it said boy the book of revelation is the one book in the bible that if you just read it you get a blessing have you ever heard that i guess i'm alone (laughs) i thought that was a pretty popular phrase uh thinking but what we have to realize in revelation is that the purpose of the letters that were written to churches was that they be read aloud in the midst of the, of the congregation, of the worship service, of the assembly. So if we were living back in, in uh, the first century when the apostles were around, you would have an individual that would get up. We read Scripture. Uh, just think of that, that, that here's a letter... That was written by one of the apostles, and we are going to read through this. Now, Revelation is 22 chapters. Imagine sitting through that, although many times I think we'd get a better grasp of Revelation if we read it all in one sitting. So there is a role of reading aloud the, role, the, the words of this prophecy. There is a role that the hearers have, that the one person reads it aloud and the congregation listens to the message, but what are both to do? What what are both called to do, whether you're reading it or whether you're listening to it as the church? To keep it. That's where the blessing comes. That's what the passage is emphasizing. That if we persevere in the midst of difficulty... There is great blessing that Jesus promises, just as he promised every one of these seven churches. We have to realize that we cannot limit eschatology, the study of last things, to simply be something that itches our curiosity. Simply to be something that we are just simply curious about. But then after the Bible study, after the debates, after all of that, then we go out and we just continue living our lives not even thinking about it. That is not the precedent of the Bible. So we see that we must realize that we cannot limit eschatology simply to the book of Revelation. We see eschatology is for today And we see that the prophetic call is always a call to repentance and faith. As we hear the hope, as we hear the warnings, it should produce in us a realization of where we currently are and repenting of that and living in faith that what is to come is actually true. That we are given a hope. But as we close, let me look at a third aspect. Not only is the aim of the Bible, the trajectory of the Bible, eschatology, God's plan is being worked out. Not only is eschatology for today, not simply for tomorrow, but thirdly, eschatology is the unfolding of God's plan. You may say, Pastor Adam, isn't that what you just mentioned earlier in your point one? Let's let's talk about this and you'll see where I'm coming from. Because eschatology is the unfolding of God's plan, that's how you can read these these next principles that we're going to talk about. Because eschatology is the unfolding of God's plan, therefore, first of all, we must approach it with conviction. We don't approach it lackadaisically or just haphazardly. We approach it with conviction. What kind of conviction? First of all, a conviction of hope. Titus 2, through 13 at the end of verse 13, it says that we are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearance of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now let me ask you, what is the hope of the Christian? Huh? I, I can't, I, I only got one good ear. <laughs> what is it? It's the coming of Christ, Right? That is the believer's hope. Now how many of us are placing our hope in lesser things? It's the fact that Christ is coming. He will be revealed. There will be a very public appearing. All will be made right. That is the hope of the believer. The hope of the believer, as we'll see in a few minutes, is not an item on a timeline. The hope of the believer isn't A a system of thinking, the hope of the believer is the assurance that Jesus is coming back. That's the hope of the believer. A conviction of hope this should give us. This should also give us a conviction of purpose. What is our conviction of purpose? That time is short. Therefore, we must be about the Father's business. Are you living in light of Jesus' coming? Revelation 22:20 20 says, "Behold, I am coming quickly." And remember, when did when did Jesus say that? About 2000 years ago he said I'm coming quickly. Does that seem like it's quickly in our minds? 2000 years? I mean, I don't like to wait for Rachel for 10 minutes in the parking lot when she's in Walmart. We don't like to wait. I mean, we have everything at our fingertips. But yet, what does First Peter say, or Second Peter say, "A day to the Lord," Or "A thousand years to the Lord is but a single day." God's timetable is not like our timetable. As we're going to see, that's why no viewpoint of eschatology of that which is yet to come has a corner on the market, because we simply don't know the mind of God. God's plans are not our plans. But yet we are to take this this plan, this unfolding plan of God with hope, with purpose, and with a conviction of importance. In other words, because we may not be able to cross all the T's and dot all the I's on our systems and our, our understanding of everything, that, of yet to, uh, that which is yet to come, that does not mean it's not important. That does not mean that, that we shouldn't have a, a healthy interest and in study in these things. But it does mean, as we're going to look at next, that because eschatology is, eschatology is the unfolding of God's plan, not our plan, we have to approach it with humility. It is amazing that when you come to this issue of eschatology, how quickly tempers can fly. It is amazing how churches have divided over the years because of differing viewpoints of end time events. But folks, when when something is God's plan, we better be humble about it and we better not say that we have a corner of the market and that it's my way or nobody else's because this is not our story this is not our plan we have to approach this with humility let's, let's uh, back up in our few remaining minutes and let's look at how historically individuals have dealt with this issue of eschatology. There are five historic fundamentals of the faith. In, fa- in fact, back in the late 1800s, early 1900s, liberalism started setting, started setting stage on the scene of not only culture, but of the local church. And people were denying uh, the authority of the Bible. People were, were saying that, that Jesus wasn't really divine. A- and that's where you had a lot of these major mainline denominations stray from the faith. And you had those which held to the Word of God. They said, We cannot be a part of these denominations anymore because of the positions they are holding. We have to break away. And from this historic shift within the church came five, well, these were always fundamentals of the faith, but these were recognized by, by by the churches that held to God's word to say, these are issues we cannot disagree on. If you disagree on these issues, you are out of line with the clear teachings of the Bible. Here are the five. First of all, is the inerrancy of Scripture. That the Bible is the very Word of God. That its teaching is true and correct. That we can't say parts of the Word of God are just man's opinion and then other parts, well, that is the Word of God. Secondly, the deity of Christ. If we say that Jesus is not the divine son of God, he was not God in the flesh, you can't, you can't be a believer. Because only a divine sacrifice could atone, could cleanse us from our sins. You can't deny that and say you hold the scripture. Thirdly was the virgin birth of Christ. You can't say that Jesus was the byproduct of immorality because what would that then say of Jesus? That it was not a divine means that he came into this world. You're again, you're undercutting the very divinity of Jesus. You can't claim that and say that you hold to the Bible. Fourthly, and we talked about a little bit about this when we looked at uh, the teaching of salvation, substitutionary atonement. Remember the illustration We need a substitute. Maybe you're out on the the basketball court or the illustration I gave, the soccer field, and you need a substitution. Only in, in the Bible story, the substitute is greater than we could ever be. Usually it's the other way around. Jesus, substitutionary atonement means that Jesus took our place, took the wrath and the punishment that we deserved in order to give us his righteousness. You can't deny that and say you hold to the scriptures. And then there was a fifth and final element, and that is the physical resurrection of Jesus and the future bodily return of Jesus. So in other words, Jesus was raised from the dead, and one day Jesus will return. Not in a spiritual sense, because liberalism would take the words of the Bible and twist it into just, well, this is, uh, this is just kind of a, a mystical, spiritual thing. No, he is bodily returning. Notice that there is no mention of a particular system of thinking regarding that which is yet to come. It was the fact that Jesus will indeed return. Folks, that is the test of orthodoxy. That is the test of whether one seriously holds the Word of God. Then I want to step back a little bit further in history. In 325 AD, which is uh, uh, just the third century after Christ, there is a, what is called a, a Nicene Creed. As the church, the early church, would encounter false teaching, what would happen is leaders of the church would get together and they would hammer out this heresy that was plaguing the church and they would come up with statements of faith that, that stems from the Scripture to not only guard against heresy, but to say here is the standard of truth that the Bible teaches. That's why, for instance, Covington Baptist Church has a statement of faith. Not because we're coming up with truth, but because we're saying here in a in a small form are are the 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 elements of faith that that are necessary. These are our guide. Part of the Nicene Creed says this. I'm not going to read you the whole thing, but it talks about Jesus and it says, for us and he he came for us and our salvation, he came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day He rose again according to the Scriptures. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. We see here the basics of the faith. Justin Martyr, going back even farther in history, Justin Martyr, who lived from about 100 to 165 AD, said this concerning differing views of end time events. He says, I and many others of this opinion, what's the opinion? That there's an earthly millennial reign of Christ. He says, I and others of this opinion, um, I... I don't know why I have that in there, believe that such will take place. But on the other hand, many who belong to the pure and pious faith and are true Christians think otherwise. So we see the historic attitude regarding that which is yet to come that has been set in place. I would dare say it's only been since around the the, the mid 1900s that there became sharp division regarding what your 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 view of your viewpoint was regarding eschatology. So I just want to take a few minutes as we close just to look at some various viewpoints. There are some questions that every viewpoint has to take into consideration. And these questions regard three elements. And I know this is almost more more kind of a teaching type thing, but I think it's it's important for us to get this. The first element is Christ's coming. Is there one or two parts to Christ's second coming? Good Christians disagree on this. Is there there a... a, uh, Uh, a coming that the world does not know of, and then a second coming later. Second element is Christ's kingdom. Will Christ reign on the earth for a literal thousand year period is the question that Christians have to work through. Third element regards God's people, uh, specifically Israel and the church. The question is, is Israel and the church completely distinct? Are they somewhat distinct yet connected? Or are they not at all distinct? The church is Israel. Those are three elements that greatly determine one's viewpoint regarding that which is yet to come. And here's some frameworks how this plays out. The first framework Is known as historic premillennialism. You probably haven't heard of uh, of this because it's not super popular in our day which doesn't mean it's not right, it just means that throughout every generation different views have held precedence. This view would say that we are in the church age, that And there's differing opinions even within systems. You cannot say, well, you're either this or you're this because there's so many different nuances in each view. I just want to give you a broad outline. There would have a tendency to be, uh, in the current day historic premillennialism, premillennialism, a less of a view of a distinction between Jesus and the church, though many hold that there is a distinction. And basically Christ comes once. There's no secret uh, rapture. The rapture comes at the second coming uh, where the saints go up and then they come. They follow Jesus as he establishes his kingdom on this earth. And then follows a millennium. Uh, you may say, what in the world is a millennium? Uh, that is, uh, uh, based on Revelation 20, verse 6, a, a thousand year reign of Christ on the earth before the new heavens and new earth of eternity. So that is one view. A second view is the view that's known as amillennialism. So millennial, you remember, is is the word for a thousand years. This view would say that there really, again, we can't put people in a box, but there there really is not a big distinction between Israel and the church, though many view that there is uh, somewhat of a distinction. But they would say that Christ reign, his millennial reign, is a, it's not that it's not a, it will never occur, but that it is occurring right now. And that when Jesus comes, there's one second coming, and that brings in the new heaven and the new earth. A third view is post-millennialism. And I should say, I'm trying to go in order of, of his, historically the views. So historic premillennialism is called historic because it seems to be the earliest system. For instance, Justin Martyr that I just read, he was a historic premillennialist and he was just 100 AD, which is roughly 70 years after Jesus. Um, Then amillennialism came on the scene. Um, uh, Not that fragments of these beliefs weren't in existence together, but where the popularity grew. So post-millennialism seems to, was, really, was really a dominant view in the history of the church uh, right before uh, World War I. Not as many people, after they saw the, the devastation of World War I, held to this view, because the viewpoint is that the church will usher in um, Jesus' return. So uh, as the gospel goes out, more and more people are getting saved, and the, 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 millennium, the millennial kingdom, the church kind of brings it about, and, and once the gospel has gone out and everyone has received, Jesus comes uh, and brings in the, the new heaven and the new earth we read about in Revelation 21 and 22. This is not a real popular view nowadays because we don't see uh, things progressively improving, though we do see the gospel continuing to spread, amen? So there's not every Every element of this view is not just crazy. There are good parts of this view, as with all of them. And then, fourthly, there is pre tribulational premillennialism. And that is where there is a, a uh, and again, th- this has even changed over time. Traditionally, there has been a great distinction between Israel and the church. And Jesus will come in a rapture that the world will not know of. And the saints will go to heaven, and then there will be a, a great tribulation. Then Jesus will come again, and he will uh, set up his 1,000-year kingdom on the earth before the new heavens and the new earth. Um, so these, these views are always, as theologians are looking at this, trying to discern God's call, uh, God's plan, um, are always kind of developing these views. In dispensationalism today, there is less of a distinction between Israel and the church. So, um, so uh, all of, I'm just giving you broad overviews. Um, there's also a view within this of a pre-wrath tri- uh, uh, rapture view that says that the church will go through the first half of the tribulation, then Jesus will come again, and then the second coming will be at the end of the tribulation. So there's all sorts of views. So you may say, Well, Pastor Adam, I'm so confused. What view do I take? Well, I believe that every single person should be a student of the Word of God, therefore, I will not tell you what view you should take. Because that would simply be parroting someone else's viewpoint. Now, if you say, What view should I take regarding the deity of Christ, you bet you better bet I'll tell you. (laughs) From the Bible. But I am not going to tell you what viewpoint to take, but I am going to tell you this as we close, that you must approach eschatology as a worldview. You must. What do I mean by that? We must approach it as a worldview, that it is the glasses through which we see life. What happens if you need glasses? Now, I just need them mainly for far away, so it's, my eyesight's not that bad. Um, I still see you. Um, but what my wife, on the other hand, is horrible with, with no, no contacts. Um, what happens when you need them and you don't wear them? I mean, you're, you're, st- you're looking like Mr. Magoo. You're, you're everywhere. Falling over everything? Listen, that's the problem with so many in the church today. The Bible, as we've seen the precedent of the Bible, we are to view the scripture and we are to view our lives through the lenses that God has a set plan and it is coming about with or without us, but he calls us to be stewards in God's great plan. Are you living your life with the glasses that God has a plan for this world, he has a plan for your life, and you are going to give an account as a steward as to what you've done with that. That's not to put legalistic demands upon your shoulders. What that is to do is to say that we are to walk in the grace that we've been given, amen? How do we approach eschatology as a worldview? First of all, we have to realize that this world, at least in its present form as we know it, is not our home. We are created for the earth but this is the fallen creation, isn't it? Satan is the prince of the power of the air that goes about. But listen, we have to realize this world is not our home. Is is your finances, are, are they showing you a mirror to you that this world is your home? Are the priorities you have in life Indicating to you that this world is actually your home even though you say it's not? Are the things that you devote the the majority of your attention to and that are always plaguing your mind, are they traitors to you saying where your true home is? As Christians, this world is not to be our home. Secondly, we cannot therefore be tied down to the things of this world. Second Timothy 2 Timothy 2:4 Paul gives a graphic picture of a soldier. You know what he says? He says no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits. Why? Since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. That's a powerful way of putting it, isn't it? Many of you have served in the military. What happens? I mean what happens if Matt's on that sub and he starts doing his own plan? <laughs> You think that's going to bode well? Man, we are the church, and we are called to God's work to do business until He comes. And, and if we are out on our own, getting all entangled up in temporal things, and we're not pulling our weight, and we're not being faithful stewards, what do you think that's going to say of yourself when you give an account? And what do you think that's going to do to the church that should be working together? And then thirdly, we are to live expectantly for our Lord's return. You know what? It may be another thousand years. I, 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 I truly am not of the opinion that because culture does seem to be swaying um, as we see, and, and, and man, just in the past few years, we've seen that on hyperdrive. I think that that, that is signs like Jesus points us to, to know his return is, is soon. But his return was soon t- 2,000 years ago. It could be another 2,000 years. You see, we have American mindsets that because we have never experienced the things that, people, that believers, brothers and sisters in different countries, they've experienced it years and years and years ago, but because now we're feeling its effects, we interpret our worldviews accordingly. Accordingly. We are to live expectantly. Again, Jesus says, Surely I am coming soon. So I would conclude by saying this. It is not what view you hold regarding end times that defines you, it is what you are doing in light of our Lord's return that defines you. So as we close, let's say this together one final time in this series. Let's say it together God's people are called to both know and live. Let's pray.